0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. I remember when I was in Hong Kong and I was working on the door in Hong Kong and I was just starting this kind of like, you know, where's all the best parties? I was the man you asked. Someone came to me and they said, oh, there's a private party down there at the yacht and it's a dinner gala. And uh, I said, oh, you're going to that tonight, are you? And they went, we really want to, but, you know, we can't. I said, oh, you know, why, why can't you? And they, they, bound, they bounded around like the Christmas tree going, oh, you know, we can't, all oh, these people, I don't know this, oh, I can't. They gave themselves all the reasons and used all their energy to tell themselves why they couldn't go mm-hmm. rather than focus that energy on how they make themselves go halfway through them bouncing around like a bunch of kind of like, you know, upset puppies. I said, look, hang on a minute, get you in two grand deal. And they went, yeah. So I walked down to the boat, walked down to the girl with the checkboard. And I said, I know the party's at eight o'clock tonight. I got the four guests with me. I wanted to know, do you want them to be here at seven forty-five or eight And the lady said to me, what's the name of the guest? And I ran off the name of the guests. And she was like, oh uh, I don't see I said well can we make sure again the question is 7.45 or 8.15 now I know you may think I'm bulldozing it through Uh but that confidence she turned around and she was looking at this list she looked at me and she went 8.15 will be absolutely fine Mr. Sims I said thank you very much and that was it
0: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, it is really cool to have you here because you're back here for a second time. And uh, this time you're back because you have a new book out called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen, which uh, I, you know, as we were talking about here uh, just before we hit record, I I managed to sit down and read in uh, just about one sitting. But before we get into all of the ideas in the book and the things that really stood out to me, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you have made with your life and your career?
1: By far, one of the best questions I've ever been asked and uh, not blowing smoke. And, you know, I've done tons of interviews. So anyone else that's interviewed me, you know, pay attention. That was a good question. Um, <laughs> my parents, my mum worked as uh, behind the till of a little village post office. And my dad was a construction worker and would basically bring on board. He had his own construction firm, which consisted of basically me, him and my mum. So they, were con- so they were very, very hardworking, up at 5 o'clock in the morning, bed at night at 8 o'clock. And here's the strange thing, and I feel very sad and embarrassed for saying this, but I need to for it to correlate correctly. I felt bitter about my teenage years about how poor I was. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I remember one day we got a new car. And the car was like 15 years old. And they were referring to it as a new car. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. A new car is a bloody new car. It's not 50. You know, why have we got to be so poor? Uh And I was very bitter about this life we had. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s and sadly probably even into my early 30s that I realized just how wealthy I actually was from what they gave me. I go along and I speak at events. I see people and they're upset about getting up at five o'clock in the morning to make a phone call. Uh-huh. You know, I will make that phone call because I can. And I know how to do it. I know the power of, of, of scrimping with your food to make it last a few days. I know how to make gas go farther. I learned all of these things as a youngster when I was poor that actually taught me that what I actually had were these cornerstones being given to me. I didn't do well at school. I do class myself as an educated person, but it was my family's ground in that started me to that to that part of the education I have now.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, one why do you think that so many people uh don't feel wealthy, you know, when they're in the situation kind of like the one that you were in? And and what actually caused that shift internally for you?
1: Um I I think the conscious shift was in my late 20s when I started to make money. Okay. And the trouble is, everyone's, everyone's benchmark is, I will do this when I'm rich. You know, it's a common statement. When I'm rich, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be rich. There's this word rich. And I could never understand what it was. If I want to go at 150 mile an hour on a motorcycle, there's a needle, there's a clock. If I hit 150, I did it. But what's rich, and I remember living in Palm Beach, I would meet clients that owned $20 million houses uh, back in like uh, 2004, moaning because they they were scrimping and they they didn't have any money, or they had a lot of money and they were still acting poor because they didn't have a trustworthy family and there was no wealth. So I learned very early on that there was actually a divide between rich, which I felt was a monetary status, Uh and wealth which I felt was your mind, your, your loyalty, your friends, your circles. And as long as I got gas in the motorcycle tank, I got a bottle of whiskey in the house, my kids are fed, the lights are on, and my family's safe, I'm the wealthiest person in the planet.
4: Yeah.
0: How do people take inventory of what it is that makes them wealthy in their own life? I mean, we've looked at this from the science of gratitude on the show before. Uh, I'm curious, you know, if you were to guide people to say, okay, you know what, we want to shift this perspective of you feeling lack or you feeling scarcity to one of you feeling abundance in multiple areas of your life, how would you guide them in doing that?
1: Well, that's, that was one of the benefits of me being young and poor. Um, I fell over so many times and got back up. I remember my dad saying... No one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there,
4: uh-huh.
1: which was a real kind of get up and get at them kind of mentality. I learned through the years that just because I fell down, the game wasn't over, I could get back up and go forward. I think the downside now, a lot of people get scared of that falling over, that they kind of hover on the edge, almost tipping off the edge of a cliff. It's, no, it's only when you actually fall over and you're in an environment well, you have to rely on your partner, your family, your infrastructure, your, your clients, your vendors. When you're in a situation where you have to go up to a vendor and go, Bertie, I'm sorry, but I can't pay you this month.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, depend- that will then suddenly reveal the relationship you have with that vendor. If you turn around to a client and go, I failed you. I gave it all my effort, but I tried to do this. It went wrong. And now this is what I'm going to do. Never go to someone with a problem. Go to them with a solution. Even if the solution's crap, mm-hmm. always go there with a solution to show them you tried to find a solution. You know, even if you can't pay your vendor, say, look, I can't pay you at all. Here's 25%. I'll pay you another 25% next month. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's when you suddenly get that response come back to you. And when you do fall down, that they turn around and they go, hey, I've got your back. Pay me in a couple of months' time. Get back on your feet. Because bear in mind, the vendor doesn't want to lose a revenue stream, a client and hopefully a relationship. Mm -hmm. So they're better vested in helping you get back on your feet. And that's when you suddenly go, do you know, my life's not over just because I fell down. I've just found my safety net. I just found my support. And that's when you suddenly start to gauge the wealth you've got in your family. If you're really successful or you think you are and the shit hits the fan, and everyone scatters off, Mm -hmm. were you really as successful as you thought you were? Yeah. So...
0: There's two questions I want to ask you about this. Um, one is, is, you know, uh, across cultures. I mean, I assume that you've worked with people from multiple ethnic backgrounds. And I'm curious what money narratives are, are like based on, on the fact that you've worked with a lot of wealthy people when you look at it across different cultures. Like, how do they view wealth? And, you know, I know from from having had a previous conversation with you. I mean, you've seen people have more money than most of us would even know what to do with. Well, What's gotcha. the story they tell themselves about money that is different from the people who don't have it?
1: Well, money, it's good that you actually brought up the cultural perspective. Yeah. There's a lot of different cultures that view money very, very different. There's actually a religion I think you may have heard of called Calvinism, Uh which is all centered around, you know, the more money you have, the closer to God you are. Uh So uh, that's uh, from Switzerland. So there's a lot of different cultures and references to to money. Um, But I do find that... While they may misuse the word wealth, wealth in my description is still valued. I know a lot of very wealthy people in, say, Asia and the Middle East, which are very, very consumer orientated. They'll wear a T-shirt if it's got Gucci written on it or if it's now off-white or the latest collaboration, the Louis Vuitton Supreme stuff. Mm -hmm. I had clients that were literally spending $12 million with me. Just to get them as much of this stuff as possible and get it over to asia um, now, but when you meet them while they like to do all of this at the end of the day, they want to make sure that their family's safe now there's 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 the eyeballs there's what they want everyone else to see them, and the perspective that they have to keep up, the perception they have to keep up, but inwards, the wealth is still your family and i think I think that's got stronger and maybe come to the surface since ninety seven 2007, and even now, Mm -hmm. we're seeing so many horrible things going on in the world. You hug your family closer. And it's a disgusting, scary place that we live in at the moment. There's so many wonderful things, but we see it far too many times on TV now about the atrocities that are are happening around It does make you hold your family a little bit closer. And if we're getting that from it, at least we're gaining something. But don't let that go, because without your family, money's nothing.
4: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: What's the story that the people you've seen with just ungodly amounts of money tell themselves about money? And do you have clients who have this kind of money who are unhappy with their lives and they're trying to buy their way into happiness through the experiences that somebody like you can provide
1: and finding that they're
0: constantly unfulfilled?
1: I I do to a point because of my character Uh and because of the persona and the media that I have, a lot of those people that are maybe a little bit um, weak in their confidence they tend not to come anywhere near me uh-huh. so I tend to get the confident people that have the same amount of money as say England um, <laughs> and they will actually come to me and they will say hey I want to do this or a lot of those people quite often and it'd be funny you'll have them spend a lot of money on a Rolls Royce or, or Lamborghini or you know some of this But then they'll want to go away on holiday and they don't want anyone to know they're there. So we'll actually do name changes at hotels and we'll have them go over incognito. We'll do those kind of things. And then we'll get a lot of people as well that actually contact us and go, look, we want to do this with charity. But we don't want it publicly known that we're doing it because then we're going to get 4,000 requests each week. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be on that list. So there's a lot of times that they would donate to a certain charity but it would again be done as an anonymous. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of things as the world's changed, and as we've seen, you know, Bill Bill Gates, I think was probably the biggest one that did it. You know, People like Bill Gates that made it to a level, was not a showboat, was not out there promoting himself everywhere, um, but built up one of the largest foundations out there. Mm -hmm. And now we've seen Zuckerberg as well, doing exactly the same thing. No showboat, just going, hey, I'm here, I'm happy. Now, my job, my obligation is to help where I can. And there's a lot of people I'm seeing doing that in a shift. And I think, again, it's a sign of the times, and I'm, I'm liking that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, the other question was what's the story that these people tell themselves about money that people who don't have money uh, don't know? And, and what's the difference between the two?
1: Well, the good thing is that every single one of my clients, and I think it's become my niche niche branding or marketing, every single one of my clients is self-made. Okay. So every single one of my clients knows what it's like to get the red letter. They know what it's like to miss a mortgage. They know what all of those things are like. So they can very confidently, toe-to-toe, look anyone in the eye and go, hey, I slept nights in my mate's garage. I'm here because I didn't let that define me. Uh Uh-huh. And there's a strength, a power, and they may be unconfident. It's funny. You get these people come to you and, you know, the last widget they did and, you know, they, they just got $70 million for selling their company. They'll contact me because they want to go to the Fashion Week in Milan and they'll be all nervous, like nervous little kids. And I'll say to them, you're there because you deserve to be there. Uh-huh. And more than anything, you appreciate it. You're the best person to be sitting in that front seat rather than some socialite hack. That just has got our head up of ass. <laughs> so, a lot of my people are very thankful and very appreciative of what it's given them—the ability to be able to do. But I don't have any clients that are disgusted with the amount of money they have. I don't have any clients that are embarrassed. They're careful and cautious, mm-hmm. but they know what it's like to be on the on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the uh, bank account.
0: Mm. Okay, so one of the quotes that really struck me in the book, um, and I remember underlining this, used "failure is discovery." What people think about you is their perception; it's not a fact about you. So, two questions come from that. One: How do you manage the perception? Because so often, I think, when we fail in some way, whether it's getting fired from a job, whether it's somebody not you know responding to us the way that we want them to, even though we we you know we can read something like Don Miguel's you know Four Agreements that tells us not to take things personally. Um, One, how do you alter the perception? Um, And then two, for you personally, in the process of getting to where you're at today, what's been the biggest failure? How did it impact you and what did you learn from it?
1: Again, brilliant questions, pal. Um, So, and I am going to go and need to lay down and get therapy after this interview. I can feed it. I've
0: been known Uh, to do that to people.
1: (laughs) The therapy is going to start with a whiskey, midday whiskey. Um, (laughs) All right, so my biggest failure… Sorry, not my biggest failure. My biggest failing um, was actually in the late 90s when I was working for Ferrari. Now, before that, I'd always been the guy in the jeans and the black T-shirt that used to ride around on a motorcycle and go to see clients, okay? That was me, okay, because I'm always on motorcycles. Now, I had this thing that happened to me, and I don't know why, in the late 90s, that I suddenly started doubting myself and I became very unconfident. And I started doing what all entrepreneurs do. The soon as something is successful with an entrepreneur, we fuck it up. <laughs> we just do that, don't we? We yeah. try to re-engineer it and we spoil the sauce and we screw it. And then we try to find out where we went wrong. And if we're lucky, we can find out where we went wrong. So as soon as Bluefish started being successful, and we started getting some great clients I thought, damn it, I can't keep turning up on a motorcycle. You know, people on motorcycles are that poor. You know, I can't be having that. I look like a thug turning up on a bike. Uh-huh. I started buying suits. I started taking my earrings out, my eyebrow piercing. And for anyone who's never seen me, I'm not the guy you would voluntarily give your black card to. <laughs> um, but, and you can agree with that. You've seen me. It's not disrespectful, but you've seen me. Um, and so... I tried changing, I, and I was working with Ferrari at the time, I bought a Ferrari, you know, I tried to turn up and all of a sudden I was putting on this front, I was putting on this costume, and I wasn't connecting on a transparent or authentic manner with the people that I'd built up relations with. Mm-hmm. And my income started to go down a little bit, but the clients I was taking on were flakes, And I suddenly realized I was taking on shallow people that were out there that wanted to do these things to impress others. Now, they were spending a lot of money in doing it, but they were trying to boast or boost their social profile Mm. by showing off to others. I didn't like this. And we were just coming into the social era at that time where they were like, oh, I was there. Oh, you weren't there? Oh, that's because you're scum. And I suddenly started looking at my clients. And hate in most of them. And I realized I had this perception of the man that can, but it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I was the guy in the black t-shirt and jeans. I was the guy that could for those I wanted to. And I was changing. So I literally thought to myself, and this is one of the chapters in the book, I thought to myself, I'm feeling negative about the people I'm working with, but I'm never used to. So again, I, I said about catching the mistake, I went back and I went screw it. I hung all my suits away, put all my jewelry back on my face and stuff, started going back out in the black t-shirt and jeans. Some of those clients that I had, those flaky ones, they didn't like this new Steve, Mm -hmm. but some of the ones that I've been working with before, you know, they came back in droves. So I caught that mistake. I ended up firing a lot of my clients and going back to the way I was. And that's when I realized the perception's one thing, but it doesn't dictate the reality of who you are. And if you can stick with the reality of, okay, I'm me, because, and this is the thing that we all do speaking and stuff, yeah. you speak to a lot of people, they get up and they go, I've got a new company, I wanna brand, I wanna be unique in the market. And if they're in IT, what are they doing? They're still doing jeans, a black T-shirt and a hoodie. They're stood there looking like something off of Silicon Valley or Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. There's nothing individual about them at all. But if you look at all of the icons that are out there, they're individual because they're individual, which is also you. So if you try to stay true to who you are, speak as you speak, you know, talk, your talk. If you've got views, get your views out there. You will resonate with people on a much greater level, and that's the power of being unique. That's the power of reducing all of your energy. And the thing that I discovered which was one of my gains from going back to the black black Mm t-shirt. It takes zero energy to be me. Zero. I haven't got to try. I haven't got to mind my P's and Q's. You know, I can tell you a dirty joke if it's appropriate. And if it's (laughs) not appropriate, then I'll probably still tell you a dirty joke. But it's it's me. And whether or not you like me, dislike me, I find that that middle ground now has been eradicated. Uh Uh-huh. And, and that has done wonders for me. So that was my falling, where I tried to be someone else. But I found that being me, my perception got grounded. I got foundations. And every time I do something stupid or I make a mistake, and trust me, my education is failing more times than you. Uh-huh. Every time I fail, I learn what not to do. I'm a great believer in failure is just feedback. But every time I fall over, I go, oh, anyone near me goes, well, go on, well, you learned from that, didn't you? Carry on. It doesn't impact this ivory tower on a pedestal image that I've manipulated to create. And that's the main thing. People can see it's me and I have credibility because I'm being me. So I do tell people quite openly, just try being you. And if you've got an opinion in the conversation, Voice said as the person walks away, he wasn't engaged with you in the first place. He was engaged with who you were trying to be. Uh-huh.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass.
2: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: I think the you know and this probably is a a question I'm sure that comes up in some form or another uh, based on the work that you do. So one of the the things that you brought up is getting into a why couldn't it be mentality, right? Because you make these just miraculous things happen for people, and I think that often the perception of what you do is okay. These are the kinds of things, like you said, that I'm not going to be able to make happen until I'm rich or famous or or, you know have ungodly amounts of money or or something or status. Um, So one how do you get into the why couldn't it be mentality and i'm at this point convinced after talking to people like john levy that based on your charisma and personality alone You can access experiences like the ones that you create for people without having money Um, so i'm curious how you've seen people do that and how people do that in their own lives, which i realize are a bunch of questions in one <laughs>
1: Yeah, and i'll try to of like, separate them um This is going back to my family I never had anything to lose when I was in my I'm a poor kid status. So every time I fell down, I couldn't get any lower than I was. I thought. Truth of the fact is I could have been a lot lower. But at the time, I was delusional to think that I had nothing to lose. And in having nothing to lose, it meant that I was able to go out there and just ask. And I learned very quickly to go in there with that bold with that bold, complete confidence that this can't go wrong. I remember when I was in Hong Kong and I was working on the door in Hong Kong and I was just starting this kind of like, you know, where's all the best parties? I was the man you asked. Someone came to me and they said, oh, there's a private party down there at the yacht and it's a dinner gala. And uh, I said, oh, you're going to that tonight? Oh, yeah. And they went, we really want to, but, you know, we can't. I said, oh, you know, why, why can't you? And they... they Bound, they bounded around like the Christmas tree going, oh, you know, we can't, all oh, these people, I don't know this, oh, I can't. They gave themselves all the reasons and used all their energy to tell themselves why they couldn't go, mm-hmm. rather than focus their energy on how they make themselves go. Halfway through them bouncing around like a bunch of kind of like, you know, upset puppies, I said, look, hang on a minute, get you in two grand, deal? And they went, yeah. So, I walked down to the boat, walked down to the girl with the checkboard, and I said, "I know the party's at eight o'clock tonight. i got the four guests with me. I wanted to know do you want them to be here at seven forty five or eight fifteen And the lady said to me, "What's the name of the guests And I ran off the name of the guests and she was like, "Oh, uh, I don't see." Her. I said, "Well, can we make sure again the question is seven forty five or eight fifteen Now, I know you may think I'm roll- bulldozing it through uh-huh." But that confidence, she turned around and she was looking at this list. She looked at me and she went, 8.15 will be absolutely fine, Mr. Sims." I said, thank you very much. And that was it. <laughs> and I, then another study, and you can play this game yourself, anyone listening. Yeah. You go somewhere and there's a lineup outside the club, lineup outside the restaurant, mm. lineup outside a store, sadly, nowadays. Okay? Yeah. You get to the front of that store you've got a heartbeat of a decision to you make. Do you walk through the front door or do you walk to the back of the line? Mm-hmm. I'm amazed at how many people walk to the back of the line. They optionally put themselves in that lineup. Yeah. And if you walk up to the front door and say, hey, how you doing, and just go to walk in, I'm stunned how nine times out of 10, they just open up the door and let you in. <laughs> it, I, I know it's funny but when you're next stood in line when you're one of those sheep that decides this is where I should stand you look at the people that just walk up and stroll straight through the front door
4: uh-huh.
1: now they may have tucked the doorman 20 bucks or they may do something like that but the bottom line is you're now stood outside still for another 45 minutes and they've just cruised in
4: uh-huh.
1: and I've always been mesmerized I think that's part of my, my Irish mentality I've always been mesmerized uh, how people will actually voluntarily put themselves in a pack to follow someone. And wow. that's what the whole lineup is. So that lesson was taught to me when I was a kid. I was very uneducated. I couldn't see how this could fail. Now I've got older and and a sight more educated on the planet and how things work. I can't understand why people optionally do it. It's like the king's clothes, or I think you call it the emperor's clothes over here, Mm. the old fable about the naked emperor. Um, So you've really got to go forward with two things. One, complete and utter confidence. Mm. That's key one. Two, utter transparency in the message that you're conveying. And that, if we don't do any more speaking, that is the key that's my secret sauce. Mm-hmm. When I go to the Vatican and I need something from the Vatican, when I go to the Pentagon, when I go to a celebrity, when I go to an A-list, when I go to anyone, I am utterly transparent, not authentic. Notice I said the word transparent. Mm-hmm. I need it for you in five seconds, ten seconds, for it to be crystal clear why I'm on the phone with you, why I'm knocking on your door. Why I've just accosted you in a restaurant. I needed to be crystal clear why I'm there and what I can do for you.
0: Wow. Okay. So I'm curious what um, interacting with so many people of high status has taught you about um relationships um social dynamics and human behavior i mean we've touched on it a little bit with what you just said about the door but i'm curious because now we're talking about interacting in those environments um yeah and i'm very curious you know what that looks like because i have been thinking to myself i want to go crash an indian wedding and i I wonder you know what i could get away with
1: (laughs) (laughs) well everyone and this is a sad bit again greg reed said about it's the size of your butt you know but i can't do this but i can't you know that kind of thing um if you get rid of those for a start and do not put the person on a pedestal. I've seen people walk up to like Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk and stuff like that. They almost start bowing to these people Mm -hmm. and put them on a pedestal so fast. Richard Branson's another one that people do the same. They put them on a pedestal so fast and that pedestal is pushing that person away from you to converse with on a level playing field. Now, the simple fact is... Richard has, experience, uh, has interests. Elon Musk has interests. Peter Diamandis has interests. Elton John has interests. The Vatican have interests. Before you, can, before you actually go to someone of that status, do a little bit of homework. Find something that they're interested in. And then get yourself into the environment. That's one of the other keys. I go to lots of galas, parties, and events. Still do. And if you look through all the social magazines, uh-huh. there's all the pictures of the parties, isn't there? Yeah. Okay? Those parties happen every year. So you miss that party, but make a note of it. Go onto the website, log yourself in, get yourself on the newsletter. you are getting informed of when the next gala is. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to get a hold of a certain celebrity or A-list or business person, whether it be a Microsoft um, uh, conference, whether it be Michael Milken's event, whether it be... Um, the Pro-Am Tennis in, in Palm Beach will be a polo event. Get yourself on the event for the following year. So you've got to do homework. Mm-hmm. And go to those events because you know those people are going to be there. Do the research to find out they actually secretly correct, collect modern mid-century chairs from the Knoll era. And then position yourself. To, as they're coming back from the bar, the restroom, walk into the, uh, to the thing. You can literally just drop them a little booklet. On modern mid-century chairs with your phone number in it. Or you can be at a bar and go, hey, I'm, I'm sorry for disturbing you. I said, but I was actually talking to someone the other day and they told me you like modern mid-century chairs. Mm-hmm. Is that right? If you can get striking up a conversation with a commonality of their interest, it shows they know you've researched them, but no one doesn't love talking about what they love. Mm-hmm. And then you can go, that's fantastic. Hey, Let's let's continue. Actually, on a, on another note, I hear you are also doing a foundation. I've got a podcast, and I'm picking on you now. I've got a podcast with a great great uh, readership and viewers and listeners. I've got a great following. I'd love to promote that to your crowd. Can we talk about that further? Yeah, you know, you're again giving them something they want, mm-hmm. and that's how you start building up the relationships by giving someone something they want. And then you, can, let's be honest. You want you will want to have them on your podcast or you'll need to have them on your podcast in order to be able to do that.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know what's in it for you. You don't ever have to tell them that. You just got to tell them what's in it for them. I've always said it's easy to get your foot in the door, but the trick is to be so irresistible they don't want you to leave. uh uh-huh
0: you know it's, it's interesting you brought up these charity events because i i remember looking at at sort of okay what can i do in san diego and I, I saw all these charity gals i'm like wow this would be a great place to meet a lot of really interesting women too <laughs> uh, <laughs> but overall i i thought about that just the, being in that environment i feel would would have a really profound impact on the way that you think just being around that caliber of people because I, I went to a karma foundation event and I, I remember just thinking i was like okay just being in in the room with these people changes how you feel about yourself
1: yeah you're right you know there's there's the whole uh, kind of like you are you are the sum of the people you associate with. So mm-hmm. if every one of your friends are dickheads, you know, let's just answer that. <laughs> um, so yeah, when you're in a view, when you're in a room full of great people, and here's here's one of the other good things about galas that I absolutely love: the rich people. In, in galas and stuff like that are quite often not the celebrities. Mm. Like, everyone knows who Harry, uh, Harvey Weinstein is now for, for <laughs> yeah. the obvious reasons. For many, many years, unless you were in the industry, you didn't actually know who this guy was. Uh-huh. He could very easily have walked through Arkansas, New York, London, Paris, easily have walked through any of those places, but Matt Damon couldn't have. Yeah. Ben Affleck couldn't have. You know... Um, those people could not have done that, but he could, yeah, he was twenty times richer. So when you go to these galas, a lot of people don't realise that the, the the big money is not in the faces you know. So you could be talking to someone uh-huh. and then discover that they actually rep, they're associated, they're related, they're married to someone you want to talk to. So quite often the best route to get to someone is to get to them through either a friend, a relationship, significant other, something like that. It sounds very um, stalky, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's what we're out there to do. We're out there to promote us. We're out there to get to see people. And these are just tips and techniques that I've actually used very successfully to make sure that when someone goes, oh, I'd like to introduce you to someone, you're actually being referred to the person you want to speak to from a credible source.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: There's nothing better than that.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, So a couple other questions that come from this. Um, One, what's the most challenging experience that you've had to make happen for a client? And what did you
1: learn from it? Most challenging experience? Um, They're all challenging. I am that entrepreneur that likes to uh, get into stuff.
0: What's the wackiest one then? Like the most out there that you've had requested?
1: Well, I can give you the most – do you know I can give you that one in a heartbeat. I've never got to think about that. Okay. It's one of the only ones that we ever decline. Okay. Okay? A client contacted us wanting to detonate a nuclear warhead. <laughs> Are you serious? No. Nope. I was in Palm Beach. They contacted us. Uh, one of the team got the call, uh, put it through to me, and I said respectfully no. <laughs> now, I'm sure – well, there's a certain bloke – you know. Rhymes with Jim. Now, I'm sure if you paid half a million dollars, it'd let you put the, push the button. But the bottom line of it is we didn't want to play in any of that, yeah. so we actually declined. Okay. Um, so that was that was the wackiest, stupidest one. Um, we've done big things like Titanic trips. Um, we had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican. Um, we had a, a, we took over a museum for a dinner party. Not Andrea Bocelli come in. We did a drum lesson with... Guns and Roses. We put a client on stage with his favorite rock band live on stage in San Diego. We've done all those kind of things, but I'm glossing over them mm-hmm. to give you one of my most memorable, and here's the key word, impactful. Okay. Now, this guy actually contacted us, and every year, uh, he'd been a client of ours, still is, uh, I think he's on like about his 16th year now. But when we caught him, he was halfway through his marriage. And so he had us doing his anniversaries. And It'd be like, oh, I want to do something really big this year. You know, great. We'll fly you over to the Statue of Liberty and we'll organize a picnic. We'll organize that you go up to the top of the Statue of Liberty, you know, and have champagne. And we'll do, you know, this over. uh, We recreate a breakfast in Tiffany. You know, we'll do this um, in Paris. Um, Fly to Paris for one night, dinner, fly back. All of the stuff we were doing was like 75 grand, 100 grand, 250, three quarters of a million dollars Fly one weekend very wealthy guy, and he contacted us one year, and he said to us, this is my 20th. So I went, okay. He said, I've got to do something massive. This is a pinnacle year. It's one of the the tens. You know, it's a big thing. We've got to do it. It's got to be amazing. It's got to be brilliant. It's got to be impactful. And I remember when he said that last word, the entire perspective changed. Now, he had spent a lot of money on these experiences every single year. Never had he asked for one impactful. He'd asked ask for them majestic, wonderful, huge, massive, you know, glorious, with diamonds, with royalty. Never impactful. So I said to him, okay, let's chat. And a lot of our job is actually about getting into the person, not what they're saying, what they mean, what they really deeply mean deep inside the gut. Mm hmm. So we started chatting to the guy and uh, said to him, you know, you've been together for 20 years, you know, tell me about her. You know, you, you know, I know I've met him a few times, but tell me about. Her. I want your perspective. You know, what makes what makes you giggle? You know, what makes her smile? You know, what do you do together? And I went to I, I was like a therapist. We got down to the funny story from him the first time they met. Now, he would chatted to her many times at college. But he used to try and chat with her and flirt with her on her way to her campus class. So one day, he actually got his parents' car rug, a picnic rug, and set up a hamper and a boombox with love tunes, bit cheesy, and waited for her to come out and then poured her a glass of cheap-ass champagne and asked if she'd cared to join him. In the middle of college, it set this picnic up for her. Okay? It won. They got, you know, got together, started hanging out, got married, blah, blah, blah. So I said to him, hang on a minute. She liked that. He went, Oh, she's told stories of that before. I said, Well, let me ask you a question. How many times has she told that story? Oh, she told it loads of times. Do you remember when we flew you to Paris, Eiffel Tower, for the uh, for the meal, and then flew you back the following day? He was like, Yeah. I went, How many times have you told that story? Oh, a good few times. As many as the picnic rug? No. All right. We actually recreated just around the corner from that home in Chicago. We set it up so that people couldn't get too close, so that they had that area. But we actually, from photographs from him as a kid, we found what the actual picnic rug looked like. Now, here's the funny thing. When he told us about how red it was, it was actually green. When you went to the pictures, it was actually green. But his <laughs> in, mem- in his memory, uh-huh. he now, you know repainted that as red. And I remember um, Dan Sullivan said, your mind polishes the past. Um, he'd even changed the color of the rug. But we knew all of the other items. It took us three purchases to get a bloody boom box that Run DMC would have been proud of and that actually <laughs> physically worked. Yeah. And here's the funny thing. You say about challenging, and as I say, I've been in the Vatican, I've been in the Pentagon, I've been in the White House, I've been in Buckingham Palace. Uh-huh. You try and record from anything you own today onto a cassette player. <laughs> you don't have any of the plugs, do you?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So
1: we bought the first two and they they weren't working. We ended up buying this pristine copy of this, uh, this boom box. I think it was a Sony or something, um, or JVC. So we had this boom box and then we're like, oh, we need to get to, and we're like, How the hell do we record any of these tunes on it? So we had to get an audio specialist to actually record our lineup of tunes onto this. They put her in a car, sent her off. She went around the corner. This guy was on the rug, hamper. Uh, We tried to recreate everything that it looked like from when they first met. Mm -hmm. So he was just in a jeans and a little polo shirt, and they pulled this car up. Now, we have what we call ghosters. Those are people that are at the bar that will pay for your tab before you leave so you don't have to. People that will go to the hotel and check you in before you turn up. In this situation, we had people just – we had people walking that dog around the picnic. You're know, about 50 yards away from the picnic to, uh, um, picnic blanket because you can't block off a public park. You can't do that. But we had these people walking dogs basically in a circle so that no one could step between them. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we had these ghosters. So there were a lot of people walking dogs that day that no one noticed. And I was around the, uh, the side of a tree, just watching her come out, just to make sure everything went well. She came out of this car, saw it. I heard the music go on, you know, from him hitting the boom box. And it was just low, you know, Alexander O'Neill or something classic from the 80s. The only sound I could hear though was her absolutely losing it. She just, her eyes went, she couldn't walk. She actually backed back up into the car, and leaned against the car. Crying her eyes out that this guy had done the first time exactly as they first met. Wow! And that was the most. The budget only got expensive because there were three bloody boomboxes involved. Uh-huh. <laughs> but even then, it was under two grand for that. Yeah. And it was the most impactful. And the driver guided her over to the to the picnic rug, and he got up and got her, and you know, brought her over. She couldn't see straight. She didn't stop crying all the way to the rug. So I'm a great believer in giving people what they want, but being careful in understanding and really listening to what they want. And it was that final word that he mentioned that if he hadn't have mentioned impactful, Uh we would never have done that. Yeah. That have been sipping tea in a pyramid or something.
0: (laughs) Which sounds amazing to most people. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think that that really kind of takes me into a final question. Uh, how do we create experiences like this, um, not only you know for ourselves in our lives, even if we have limited resources, because I think impactful really was the word that stood out to me as well. And just listening to that story, because it seems like somebody who had more money than they could possibly spend didn't have to spend that much to create that experience. So one, how do you create how do people create these kinds of experiences in their own lives for themselves and for other people? Um, you know, like in my day to day life of living in San Diego, how can I have a richer experience of life through doing things like this?
1: you should straight away start getting yourself into environments that you're not used to being into. Okay. Okay. Cause you don't know you like certain foods until you do the stupid thing. Like try it. So go out there and actually start flicking through those magazines and getting yourself into environment. The, the karma clubs are great, great group. I do know those guys. Well, I Know the boys down in San Diego and up in LA. Well, mm-hmm. um, Great event, great group, great core group of people. But you get yourself into situations where it you expands your mind. It could be it could be a mastermind group. It could be a cooking course. It could be a singles retreat. But unless you actually play, then you can't win. Mm. And so you've got to start by just enriching your education. I'm a great believer that we should have just get rid of schools. And I know everyone's going out there going, yeah, twat. How can you get rid of schools? Just imagine if tomorrow all schools closed for the next 10 years. Hmm. We would have to focus on how to educate our kids. Now, I know for me personally, I don't bloody want them home every day. I like that piece. <laughs> um, and there's probably a lot of people out there thinking the same. Yeah. But I guarantee you, you'll come up with better ideas of how to educate them. And homeschooling, homeschooling was something that you did if you lived out in the middle of the freaking boonies. And that's what you did as a result because you couldn't get them to school. Now so many people are choosing homeschooling because it gives them a richer experience. And I think you've got to realize that just because you left school, it doesn't mean your education stopped. Get into environments, get into clubs, get into um, uh, arenas, get into environments. You know, start um, helping out at the local uh, you know, pet adoption place. Start helping out at the local kids' school. Mm-hmm. Grow what you can see feel, breathe and smell and expand your horizons because you can never, you go and do that for a day, you will never be the same person again. Mm.
0: Wow. Amazing. Okay, so one final question for you, which uh, I know you have heard me ask before um, and it's how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Details. Mm. I, think you, I think it's the tension of detail. You turn uh, just giving you a warning if anyone turns up to me, if you're wearing brown shoes and a black belt, I don't want to talk to you, <laughs> you know? So I, I know it sounds stupid, but if you, if you try to write something down, you've got a pen that's chewed at the top. Yeah, basically, if you can't pay attention to the details, then you can't pay attention to me.
0: Ah, uh, Wow, amazing. Um, <clears throat> where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and the book?
1: So Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen, is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects, you can go to stevedsims.com. That's S-I-M-S, stevedsims.com. And if you want to hear about Bluefish or Taste of Blue, which is the new iPhone membership, just head over to thebluefish.com.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
2: off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch.